What's up? Welcome back to Barton and Bud. I'm Barton Simmons. He's Bud Elliott. It is SEC week in college football. We've gotten our appetizers out of the way. We've gotten a little bit of, we dabbled in some decent games in the ACC. Gotten a cute few power five, or a group of five upstarts to, to get our feet wet. But uh, now we got some real interconference SEC matchups. Bud, congratulations. We've made it. Uh, this, is, this is a critical turning point in the season with the Big Ten, the Pac-12 looming on the horizon as well. This is, this is a big weekend, man. I'm, I'm excited for it. You could tell Barton's excited for it. If you're watching the YouTube version of this, he's like, all right, SEC week, give me the baby's nursery. We're, I'm going to record in here. This is my office during the day. Let's let's go. Uh, but one of the first things that, that I noticed this week from you is your SEC depth chart analysis, which you've done for all the other leagues. And what, what stood out to you about this? Obviously, you can check the article out on 247sports.com, but hell, you had to cover – what, probably 10, 12 teams in here. So uh, this is interesting. Yeah, I mean, this is this is like, these are the things that jumped out to me over the course of just sort of looking at these depth charts. And it, it's, it's sort of, um, I don't know, team by team is probably the best way to go because there's not really necessarily an overarching theme. But, but a lot of this is freshman related because they're the newcomers and seeing which one of those guys are popping, which one of those guys are, are, are breaking new ground on the depth charts. Um, is is always, I think, educational, informative because it, it gives you some insight into what else is on the roster as well. Um, I think just you know from the top for Alabama, I think the the biggest eye opener was look we've been hearing all all preseason of how good Will Anderson is, um, their five star edge rusher, Drew Sanders has been getting really positive reviews too. Both both guys true freshmen. For, for those guys to be not just like, cause, cause the, the thought process was, all right, they're playing well, look out. You can see some Will Anderson on third down packages. Look out, like pin those guys ears back. Just let them go chase the quarterback on, on third and long. They may flash. Well, well hell, I mean, it looks like Nick Saban's going to throw those guys out there on first down. And I, I think that that is, that's telling about how good they are. It's the first time Nick Saban's ever had a true freshman starter at the Jack position. Um, but also, I think that that, to me, that, that they have proven, like that they have earned Nick Saban's trust to play, I think is a good sign in that their best players are going to be on the field. Like if, if they weren't starting, someone starting above them would have been starting just because they hadn't. They hadn't hadn't gotten comfortable enough in the system, but, you know, weren't weren't catching on quick enough. But not because someone was more talented than them, not because someone was better. Uh, and so I think that this is a good sign for Alabama's defense that those guys are going to be um, starting on the on the edge. You know, Bama last year at times pass rush was an issue. We spoke probably about a month, maybe six weeks ago, about how look. There's not that many great passing attacks this year in this league, we don't think, especially not on Alabama's schedule. I feel very strongly about their ability to stop the run. And if these freshmen step up and are what we think they might be, then I feel really strongly about Alabama's ability you know, to, to stop the pass as well. So uh, that's, that's a really good observation by you. I'm going to take us to LSU. Two true freshman pass catchers for them, Kayshawn and then Arik Gilbert at tight end. Man, I am really high on both these guys. Got to see him at the in the Army game, and obviously when when uh, when Reek was banged up. But uh, you know, got to see Kayshawn in, in Orlando. Dude, these guys have a lot of talent, and yet it does scare me a little bit that LSU is going from what they had to two true freshmen who are super talented, but but inexperienced. So I'm very interested to see how that plays out. Yeah, I thought. I mean, Eric Gilbert, he's. You know, he's good enough to start anywhere in the country almost. Uh, there's only a couple of tight ends, even as upperclassmen, that are probably better than him. So that one is is was like to me a given. All right, Eric Gilbert's going to come in. He's going to be an instant impact guy. He's going to catch 50 passes and 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 they'll be good. Um, Boutte was was the one five star receiver coming in. I think Jamar Chase being gone is probably what allowed him that opportunity. But still. You think about some of the players that that he beat out um, to to get that job. There there's some highly regarded guys in that room. You know, guys like Trey Palmer. Um, you know that that's 
came in as a as a highly touted recruit to begin with. Um, you know, he so I think that uh Boutte is is probably a kid that is is that that's one I'll be sort of know what to think about it once I see him play. Because look, I, I think he's a stud. I think he's a future first round pick. And I think it, and I'm not surprised that he is starting. Uh, but I also know how talented LSU is and and how talented they were last year at the receiver position. So um, I, I'm 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 fascinated to see how quickly he can make an impact. And apparently uh, Elias Ricks at cornerback is going to be playing right away for LSU. And, and here's the name to watch, too, on the defensive side of the ball. B.J. Ojolari, um, who's if, if you if you follow Georgia, Aziz Ojolari is one of their better p- pass rushers. This is his younger brother teammate of Eric Gilbert in high school out of the state of Georgia. He's going to be a significant factor as, as a pass rusher for LSU and that four man defensive front. Um, that that's another guy that's gotten a lot of positive reviews this off season under new defensive coordinator, uh, Bo Pelini. Bo Pelini. Yeah. yeah. Uh, something that did not encourage me a whole lot is Vanderbilt's four or three or so four co-starters at quarterback. And, and I, Normally, if I saw this, I would think, okay, this coach is just trying to play games with the opponent. They're trying to get some kind of advantage by not announcing who the starter is going to be, blah, blah, blah. Barton, I don't know if that's the case here. Like, they might just not have a, a starter that they trust. I and mean, this was arguably the worst offense in the SEC last year. They, they lose several key pieces off it. I think the offensive line is, is destined to be uh, a real liability throughout the year. Um, and they don't know who their quarterback's going to be this is this is crazy they're I think their team total like the, the you, you can bet on how many points they're, they're going to score as a team in Vegas against A&M is seven and a half so basically Vegas is saying will, will they score a touchdown in this right. game to open up the year or not and I'm I'm not so sure the play there is over so <clears throat> I think I think I saw this this was either today or it might have been like yesterday afternoon <clears throat> after the story posted but uh, Derek Mason did speak to the media and he said, so it's, there's obviously there's four co-stars in the depth chart, but he said, you know, in our, in, you know, in practice, we've really kind of narrowed it down to two. And one of those guys is getting 70% of the reps between the two. So they, they apparently they do have a starter okay. and my because cons- I was had the same <laughs> concern you do because we've now, now the question is how committed are they to that starter? Because I think that's the bigger question for Vanderbilt because Vanderbilt, has played this game before. They in Derek Mason's first year, their their quarterbacks were Pat and Robinette, Johnny McCrary, who's a freshman, um, Stephen Rivers, who's Philip Rivers' younger brother, and uh, Wade Freebeck. And none of those guys were very good. And but but none of them were really given a chance because every time things started to go south you know, they would make a move with the quarterback position. And so all those guys almost played like equal snaps to equal, um, to, you know, equally poor play. So I, I will be, like, I'm sure they have a quarterback and he's going to trot out there. He's going to be the first team guy. But if, if by halftime they're pulling him because A&M is, is pulling away, then that, that tells me that they, they could be in for a, a long season again on offense. So I'm, I'm anxious to see, as much as anything, how the quarterback position is managed, given that they sort of seem to have four options uh, to choose from. It's, 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 it's going to be fascinating, man. Uh, let me see. Other teams here that I know we're not going to talk about in the other part of the show. Uh, Florida's depth chart looks really good. I, I think you made a great point here about them having a lot of versatility on the defense with, with Jeremiah Moon and, and, and Bogle, you know, co-starters at, at, at the Buck. Amari Bernie, they've used a lot uh, on a rotating basis there in the secondary and also kind of like, you know, that nickelbacker position. I like their pass rush. I, I don't know if I love their defensive interior, but it doesn't suck. It, it's just, it, it doesn't stand out, you know, to me quite as much as some of the other spots on this team do. Yeah, I think I think that they this could be a sneaky good defense, and not that anyone thinks that they're not going to be good, but I just I, I like I the the thing that stuck to to me, and I wrote this in the story that um, kind of jumped out to me when, when looking at Florida's depth chart is like the idea of positionless defense and and the the movement that you're seeing with that, and particularly in the NFL and 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 college the college game too. Now you know the the nickel or the star or the 
you, you know, your, your nickel linebacker or whatever, just sort of that, that hybrid defender um, to create this, this more malleable defense. Um, I, I think that Florida has the athletes and the versatility to just be really mobile they did with the way they, they handle their defense and with what Todd Grantham can do. And so I just like Florida's malleability. Is that, is that the right word? Malleability. I think so. Yeah. It's malleable. The defense is malleable. And I like that. I like that they have athletes and I like that they are, they appear to have the ability to go more positionless in terms of just getting good players on the field, getting versatile players on the field, getting, um, and, and being able to attack you in a lot of different ways. I, I think there's a lot of guys that, uh, on that defense that can rush the passer. I think there's a lot of guys on that defense that can cover. Uh, I think there's a lot of speed. So I, I just think it's going to be a fun defense to watch. Um, Todd Grantham's kind of a fun defensive coordinator anyway because of the way he's a, he is as an attacking guy. Um, so if the defensive front can can be stable and sound and 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 – add a little depth and maybe get some uh, impact from some of these talented young guys that they've got like uh, Jervin Dexter, then I think that this could be a really good defense. So th- this is a game that, that we are not going to have on our, what we're looking for part of this weekend, but we, we almost could combine it. And, but we, we already talked about Florida. So on Ole Miss, you have a lot of really good notes and I encourage people to go read it on 24 seven sports.com about their offense, but defensively and Ole Miss lost a lot. They've not been recruiting very well. Like this could be the year where, where their defense potentially drops off a cliff. I, I was thinking about several different angles to bet this game. And on the one side, I was like, okay, I really trust Lane Kiffin. I think Ole Miss has some sneaky good offensive talent. Offensive line, maybe a question with the depth, but in game one, maybe shouldn't be that much of a problem. And then I think, okay, wait a second. This is a new guy installing a, installing a new system. It didn't get the benefit of like a spring and summer like a new coach or new coach typically would. I don't really particularly like how that's gone for a lot of these guys in opening games. So I don't know if I really want to take like an Ole Miss team total under, even though I, I you know, do, uh, I do respect Florida's defense a lot. On the other side, like I doubt Ole Miss's defense quite a bit, but Florida is installing a bunch of brand new receivers. And I don't know how well they're going to click with Kyle Trask in game one. I think there's some concerns over there in Gainesville about the offensive line and will it be improved enough? Because I think, we both agree in order to take that next step in order to, to kind of overcome a passing game that might not be better this year. I know Kyle Trask is a year older, but there's a lot of these Florida dudes who are balling out in the NFL on Sundays from last year's roster. They have to take a step forward in my mind, running the football. And so I don't know if that's going to be there in game one. So I'm, I'm probably going to live bet this man, but like this is a game I'm actually pretty intrigued by. Uh, and I think your, your depth chart piece really kind of hit that home too. There's not a lot of, uh, not a lot of notes on the defensive side of the ball there as far as you know studs that we recognize from high school. Yeah, I mean it's it, yeah, I mean this is going to be an interesting season uh defensively. DJ Durkin's got his hands full. Um and and Ole Miss has got big playability and and kind of yeah, you can make a probably a case that Florida's um you know their attacking style could offer up some big plays too. Um I don't know. That that that'll be a fun one. I think before we move on from the depth chart, because we are going to talk about a few of these teams in, in matchups, I also thought it was it was interesting, borderline comedic, when you looked at Texas A&M's depth chart. We talked about Vanderbilt. They're playing A&M. A&M's got to get, find some help at the receiver position. They've got to find some, you know, Jamon Osmond's out. Um, Cameron Buckley is is out with injury. They, they really don't return anybody that has any significant production from the receiver's position last year, other than some pass catchers uh, like Jalen Weidermeyer at tight end. And, um, you know, their, their running back starter had a few catches, but receiver, they really don't have anybody coming back. And, and their depth chart has three wide receiver starting spots, no clear starter. There's 10 guys with an or next to their name as basically co-starters. So, I guess that's Jimbo Fisher's way of saying, "Who the hell knows? Let's uh, let's roll the ball out and see who makes plays." Because they hadn't had maybe as many opportunities as they like to sort that thing out. So Jimbo Fisher is getting just as clear answers about his receiver position as I get when I ask my wife what she wants to do for dinner. All right, uh, so <laughs> you want to uh, you, you want to throw it to the ad read here? Yeah, we'll go. We'll go All check. Right. Uh, um, get a little ad break in here. 
come back on the other side and we'll talk about all the games, all the big ones and, uh, and what we're looking for. All right. Welcome back. Uh, let's, let's talk about the, the slate. Uh, we can go chronological. We can go morning to night because there's some good ones in every section. The first, uh, the noon slate, you got it. I, I, I'm trusting you here on this, on our, on our cheat sheet here, but so you, you, that you got this figured out from a, from a logistical standpoint, but this is Eastern uh, time, by the way. Okay. Eastern time, noon kick ish, Kentucky at Auburn, my game of the entire weekend. Uh, I'll let you have first dibs on. Like, what? What's you? What are you looking for? What's What's your uh, angle here? So, I I want to know: Can Auburn's offense overcome the losses that it has on defense? Kevin Steele and his defense has carried that team for a couple of years in, in a row now. Bo Nix last year showed some promise as a freshman, but he wasn't a good player by SEC quarterback standards. You know, last year just objectively. If Auburn's going to get to where they want to go, which is like at the very least a winning record in the SEC in a 10-game schedule, maybe get up in that 7-3. If you get lucky, maybe that 8-2 and two range. Maybe if you get really lucky, compete for the West. I don't really see that happening. Bo Nix and, and this offense have got to do a better job, and they have to just step up under new coordinator Chad Morris. So that, that, I'm interested to see, can Bo Nix and, and this offense carry the load for Auburn? Because I do think the defense will take a step back, given how much talent it lost to the NFL. But my other question here is I think Auburn might be able to stop the run of Kentucky. Kentucky has a great offensive line, but Auburn has two really good backers in KJ Britt and Owen Bapo. I mean, Tyrone Truesdale is not a bad interior defensive lineman, maybe not the best pass rusher type, but he certainly is a guy who can plug some gaps. Can Kentucky throw better? I mean, they they they, they get you know Wilson back, and, and they're not having to use uh, Lynn Bowden as fun as that was last year. I want to see if can, if UK can actually chuck the ball around. Yeah, they're going to have to. This, I mean, there's going to have to be different offensively than they were last year. I do think this is a fun matchup because uh, as good as Auburn's been defensively, in some ways this is strength versus strength. Like if we're going to say that they did reload it to some degree in their front seven, well, they're facing an offensive line that is outstanding that we that at least I think is going to be outstanding for Kentucky they 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 may not have Benny Snell at running back but they've got like three good backs to to um share the load so I, I will say this like I I went to this weekend basically expecting to pick Kentucky with the upset um and then the depth charts came out and I sort of you know I I looked at Auburn's personnel and it's kind of like, well, you know what? Yeah, they lost some guys, but they got some pretty damn good guys coming back. I mean, they're still – it isn't as if the, the cupboard is bare. And so I have – I don't know what I'm going to pick here. I'm, I'm still leaning Kentucky against the spread, but I'm, I'm, I'm even reserving judgment on that for the time being. I do think this is a great test because I think Kentucky is a legit Tier 2 team in the SEC. You know, they're not Auburn – I'm sorry, they're not Alabama. They're not um, – Georgia, uh, you know, maybe Florida, maybe LSU. Like, we'll see who's in that can can sort of be in that top tier. But I think in that in that second tier, I think Kentucky is right there as good as anybody. And so, this but we'll find. I mean, they if the, if that's true, then this is the game they have to prove that. Um, but again, I think like the 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 you know the. For me, it was like the eye-opening thing was like looking at this this Auburn roster because you mentioned. I mean, they got Big Cat Bryant coming back on defensive end. Derek Hall has beat out TD Moultrie for the other defense for the for the Buck spot. I've I've always thought TD Moultrie was talented. He hadn't quite lived up to it, but you know that's like as a senior that's going to be a backup. Um, Truesdale, you mentioned Kobe Wooden coming in as a redshirt freshman starting, and they have some young guys like Zacchaeus Walker is, an, mm-hmm. is a true freshman who, who I think is going to play a lot. Georgia kid, and really nasty. Yep, KJ Britt, Owen Popo, Jacoby McLean at, at linebacker. You know, Wesley Steiner's a true freshman that's a freak athlete. And they got a lot of guys that have played a lot of snaps in the secondary. So it's, you know, you just look, look across the board and you're like, all right, well, the defense is actually really sound. It's not going to be as dominant as last year, probably, but it's still really sound. And then I think they got four really good running backs to choose from. They've, you know, can, can this offense be a little bit more wide receiver friendly? We'll find out this weekend with Chad Morris, but 
this is a fascinating game to me, and I'm 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 very anxious to find out what these teams are about because I think this is the one game in the opening weekend where there's we're going to know one way or the other. Like you know, we're going to figure out whether Kentucky is the real deal, and if Auburn beats Kentucky, and if they win by ten points or something, then Auburn's Auburn's the real deal as well. I I, I believe that to be true. So uh, I think this is going to be the most informative game of the weekend. Would you would you be willing to go so far as to call this an elimination game for Auburn? Like if they don't win this, they can't win the East or the or the West, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, probably yeah. If they can't beat Kentucky, even if it's is a good version of Kentucky, then the idea that they're going to roll through Alabama, A and M, LSU, you know, Georgia, Georgia, <laughs> yeah, Georgia, yeah, uh, yeah, it doesn't look good for sure. All right, let's go to another one here, and I'm really excited about this. I think this is also an elimination game as far as you know making the ACC championship, and that is Louisville, fresh off a 13-point home loss to Miami at Pitt, fresh off a 21-10, kind of like not impressive but never really in, in doubt uh, win over Syracuse. So I'll, I'll let you lead off on this one. What, what are you looking to learn in this game? Yeah, I, so I've I, Pitt is sort of like my Kentucky of the ACCs is is my team that I th- I think is is better than probably a lot of people are giving it credit for. Offense didn't look great against um, Syracuse last week, but defense looked really good again. Um, I, I think a lot of defenses will look good against Syracuse, but l- let's let's call Pitt what it is, which is a really good defensive team under Pat, Pat Narduzzi as a defensive coach. So, all right, so you get Louisville, who is an explosive offense. Um, I, I think the big sort of scary um, characteristic of Louisville that we're all still trying to figure out is how bad is this defense? It was a bad defense last year. It's been a bad defense for the first couple weeks of the season, at least against Miami it was. Um, you know, they gave up 47 to Miami. They were giving up all kinds of big plays and busts. But, you know, gambling Twitter's kind of been on this a little bit. And so I, I dug in some. that there. I think Louisville's defense to this point might not be as bad as it's being billed to be. And I've I've been one of the people that's been very critical of it. But I do like in in researching this a little bit more, um, like a Louisville's Louisville's defense defensive success rate uh to this point in the season is eleventh in the country. Now that's that's eleventh out of what, fifty two teams that have played. So it's not like that's, you know, crushing it, but it's you know, sixty five percent Louisville's defensive success rate is is a pretty solid number. Um, it's just that when they're when they're when when they're not successful, they're giving up huge plays. Um, so I just sort of wonder in this game, can Louisville's defense sort of come to play against an offense that's still finding itself with Pitt? And what is Pitt's defense going to do? against a Louisville offense that conversely might not be quite as good as it's being billed to be because the offensive line is still finding itself there. And so I think that this is a really interesting matchup in that it's a couple of teams who, you know, I, I think they, they almost complement each other well in terms of what they're good at and what the other team is struggling with. And so I think we could see, I don't know. Maybe this is a lower scoring game than people anticipate. I'm going to dig a little more. That might be on my card, but that, that that's an initial flash judgment of the matchup. So, I, first of all, I love the use of success rate on here. I, I think that's that's a really key metric. It's almost like on base percentage in baseball, right? It gives us a pretty good feel for what's going on on kind of a down to down level. And digging even deeper on that, uh, here's kind of a yo stat to hit you with, and and, and you, may, you may want to drop this on on cover three too. Louisville's defense held Miami's run game to an 18% success rate. Yeah. The issue was they allowed a 47-yarder and a 75-yarder. So if, you, if you're just a person who's looking at you know average yards per carry, right, Miami looks fine. They're, <clears throat> they're at like five and a half yards per carry. But less than one in, their, one in five of their run plays against Louisville, which I don't think is a good defense, but maybe you're on to something that they're not as bad as we think, graded successful for the Canes. Um, if they can do that to Miami, they might be able to really shut down this pit offense. I, I think the race in this game, Barton, is probably to like 28 points. If, if, if you tell me either of these teams gets to 28, that, then I, I feel pretty confident. I, I don't think Louisville can put up you know, 40 on pit. 
I, I think Pitt will, will be able to get a lot of tackles for loss. I trust that Pitt's, Pitt's defense is actually better than Miami's. Um, but maybe Louisville's defense is better than I think, too. This line opened 53. It's actually been steamed to 55, 55 and a half. And I wonder if that is not because of the defensive efficiency, but rather but because of the tempo that these teams want to play at, right? Maybe Louisville wants to play a little more up-tempo. Pitt actually doesn't play quite as slow as I think in my head I think they do, you know, because I think Mark, of them as – Mark Whipple is still trying you – know, he's trying to yeah. toss it around a little bit. And the other thing that, that impacts my thoughts on this game, I don't know – Syracuse's defense now has caused some confusion and some problems for two offenses in a row in, in North Carolina and then yeah. obviously Pitt last weekend. And that's weird to me because they're running a new 3-3-5 defensive attack and only one of their coaches has ever coached that before and blah, 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 blah. It just didn't seem like a great recipe to, to do that in this COVID offseason. But it seems like it's effective. So will that – like like is Pitt's offense maybe better than I realize it is? They look great against Austin P, but you know everybody does because uh, they, they're a pretty you know, crappy FCS team. Yeah, so can can Pitt's offense make Louisville's defense look bad? And uh, you know, honestly, if Louisville just makes them earn it, that th- they might have something going for them. Just stop giving up seventy-five yarders where there's nobody else on the TV screen. Like that was one of their biggest issues. Yeah, and again, I you know this is sort of a deal where like we're I, I I'd like to I'd like to find out the answer to this question. Like I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, Louisville's defense is not as bad as you think. Like they might be as bad as you think, but but. I think we'll. I think we're going to learn this weekend one way or the other because um, you can't. You know, if they do it again, this is another day of like, oh, they have like eighteen percent success rate running the football, but they broke two seventy-five yard runs. Well, it's like, well, then if you're giving up two seventy-five runs a game, then you're not very good defense. And uh, so, yeah, like I, I just think this is. Uh, we're still learning exactly who these teams are, and at least we have enough of a sample size with Louisville to, to have to like have a sniff of it. Um, but this is going to help us clarify some of that a little bit more. Um, next on the slate, uh, Iowa State at TCU. Interesting game. Brock Purdy fresh off his worst game as a passer in his entire college career against uh, Louisiana. Not saying the Lafayette part here. TCU, they get Max Duggan back, but not for this game. He has been medically cleared, so they're going to be going with the backup here. I, Barton, I, I got to tell you, like TCU is not necessarily the team that I want to play if I got to get right as a passer. So that, that's my first question I want to learn here is, is what, what kind of bounce back game can Brock Purdy and this Iowa State passing offense have against a, a TCU defense that, that I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty confident in. I, I was ready to be, be a TCU guy this offseason until Max Duggan went down. And uh, look, Iowa State has got to find a way to throw the football. Otherwise, they, they, they could be in for, for an upset here, that they are a small favorite in Fort Worth. I was, uh, I was prepared to be a TCU guy this, this year as well. And then Max Duggan goes down. The new quarterback, a former walk-on at Georgia that transferred over, um, Matthew Downing, uh, I don't. I just don't know what to expect out of him. I I think if he is decent, if he is simply below average, like I think TCU has got a chance to to win this game. If he is, I, what I'm scared about is if he is horrible. We've seen TCU with horrible quarterbacks, and I don't care how good your defense is, you can't. Yeah, like that's hard to overcome horrible quarterback play, and so uh, I am. That's my that's my biggest sort of question. I did because one of the things that is has sticks out to me a little bit about this matchup is the idea that and we were talking about this in Slack yesterday, but TCU on paper is a significantly more talented team than Iowa State in terms of the way they've recruited. Um, they actually have done a pretty good job of getting four star kind of top 100, top 247 type of guys consistently in that program. And they had another good class this year that, that's actually loaded with wide receivers. So I, we'll see if those guys can make an impact. Iowa State has, you know, they've got their, they've got some players, um, but the, the, the sort of the depth and the, the athleticism one through 85 is not quite the level TCU's is at. And so that jumped out to me a little bit. Um, 
that said, I was like, okay, but what, what's, what's this matchup even looked like over the past few years? And so I just looked at the Matt Campbell versus Gary Patterson matchup and it's two and two straight up. Um, four years ago, TCU won 41, 20, then Iowa state won 14, seven, then TCU won 17, 14. And then last year, Iowa state won 49, 24 of note though, uh, Iowa state covered all four of those spreads. So Matt Campbell is actually four and zero against the spread two two and two straight up. So like, they've got this interesting sort of, you know, again, two of those games were very low scoring. Um, so I, I, I'm, so we'll see, like, I, this is a fascinating game to me and, and I'm tempted to take TCU because I just think they might be better than people are giving them credit for. I've just got this big X factor staring me in the eyes with uh, Matthew Downing. And so maybe I just need the next 24 or 48 hours to do a little digging on, on how much confidence I can have in him. But it, this is a tough one for me to peg. I'm kind of kicking myself for not realizing how big of a loss Charlie Kohler was going to be against Louisiana. Um, obviously, I know how good of a player he is. We, we all think he's, he's awesome. But if you take him out, Iowa State, they graduated guys with 100 targets and 86 targets off last year's team in, in Deshante Jones and, and LaMichael Petway. Kohler was the number three target on that team. The, the, the next guy had only 35 catches. The next guy was a running back. The next guy was a backup tight end. So they need some receivers. to. First of all, Kohler is apparently uh, day-to-day and will travel, according to, according to reports, uh, as of this morning. So that's, that's encouraging for Iowa State that, that he's going to make the trip. We'll, we'll see if he's able to play. They're all America level tight end, but they need somebody like, like, like a Sean Shaw to step up on, on the outside and, and give them a receiving threat who is not just a slot type. And, and so I'm, I'm very interested to see what kind of receiver play they get. Cause we know that, that, uh, that, I mean, dude, TCU's got, got a hell of a pair of safeties. Yeah. And, and their, their linebackers are really good. They've, they've got a pretty good defensive line. I mean, TCU's defense should be, I don't know. I feel like I've said this a few times recently, so um, I'll I'll sort of hold for the hyperbole of calling it like one of Gary Patterson's best. I, I don't. I think they'll be good though. Like I think their defense will be good, and they got they've got a pair of safeties and a Gary Patterson typical hybrid linebacker that are among the better defensive players that that Gary Patterson has has coached in the back seven, and so. Um, yeah, I think I think that this is going to be a test for sure. All right. Uh, Tani, if you want to cue up some of that SEC on CBS music here, it is time for a discussion of Mississippi State at LSU. God, turnover. Not turnovers, but turnover is sort of my word for, for this game. A lot of turnover on both sides of the football for both teams, LSU, 2019 edition, arguably the most dominant college ball team in history when you look at who they beat and how much they beat them by, and then the fact that pretty much their entire starting roster uh, was drafted away, which is maybe not such a good thing f- for this year. I'll, I'll let you lead off on this one, Barton. What what are you looking to find out? I mean, And keep in mind, this, this podcast is only about an hour, so we, we don't necessarily have 40 minutes to discuss all the things we want to find out about LSU and Miss State in this game, but this is this is interesting. I think my biggest one for this one is is actually I know everyone wants to see the air raids. I do too. I want to see what Mike Leach can do, but I'm actually more interested in the other side of the ball. I'm interested in we talked about LSU and their their five star starters, their true freshman starters, all the guys that they lost. But Miles Brennan steps in at quarterback. And I'm interested in just like what LSU looks like relative to Mississippi State's defense because I don't, I don't think this is going to be a great Mississippi State defense. It wasn't a great defense last year, and they lost six starters off that group. Um, a couple of them are starting for Florida State now, which wasn't a great defense so far this year either. <laughs> and I think you know they've got they, they they this is a team that through three quarters last year was down 36 to seven against LSU. Now that's no shame in that. A lot of teams did that, but that's our, that's what we're comparing this to. All right. Three quarters of play LSU scored 36 on this group. What are they going to look like three quarters of play this year? Is it going to be 24 to seven at that point? 
Uh, is it going to be 24 to 13? Is it going to be closer than that? Or, or is LSU going to be, you know, putting up a big number once again? And, you know, and then we'll just, and then we can decide whether that's a reflection of LSU's offense or, or Mississippi State's defense. But I just, that's the measuring stick that I want to watch because, um, for all that we're talking about with Mike Leach and installing that system, they got to install a defense too. And, uh, this is, you know, this is going to be a challenge. Now, this is the same defense. It's, who, who's, let's see, Mississippi State's D coordinator this is another San Diego State guy, right? Yep. Yeah. So he, this is going to run that Rocky Long style defense. It's the same stuff that, that Syracuse is running that's giving people fits. And so, uh, you know, another opportunity to, to see if that defense can, um, yeah, and hey, like Syracuse, this is his first year. Tony White's defense is Syracuse, so it's not like they've had two years to implement it either. So uh, that could be a story. Like that's all right. So that's what I'm looking at. I'm, I want to see if the Rocky Long defense uh, kind of foils yet another powerful offense. Yeah, th- this is a game that, that I'm I'm going to look to uh, to bet an over in live. Right, I, I think there's a good chance because, like you said, neither team has a great feel for what the opponent is running, I, I don't think. Uh, so looking to bet this thing live, maybe after a couple of, uh, of scoreless or, or field goal type drives early on in the ball game, get that, get that total down. What, what, what's the total at now? It's uh, uh, 56 and a half, which honestly, I, I feel like if I had to play it pregame, I'd probably go over there. I, I, I do have some faith in, in Mike Leach and, and his offense chucking the ball around and you know scoring. Like If they can get 20, can LSU get you 35, uh, you know, to, to get to that kind of 55, 56 number? Uh, but like, if this thing starts out and we're 10 minutes into this game and it's, you know, seven nothing, I, I, I think I'm going to be firing on a little live over there. The, the stuff, and I just don't know how much, how many takeaways I can actually make from this game because I, I don't feel like I have a, uh, like, like a constant variable to compare it to, like, like we talked about in the last show. If if Mississippi State, if I knew what they were. Then I could judge Miss. I, I could judge LSU off them, or if I knew what LSU was, I could judge Mississippi State off them. But both these teams have so many unknowns. I, I think this is the game of the weekend that has the most unknowns combined between the two squads that that we have on our list this week. There's just I just there's so much I don't know about them. Did you see KJ Costello was listed as a co-starter with the true freshman Will Rogers? Um. Uh, wow. That's uh I mean they I think the expectation is that KJ Costello still starts. I think that that was a little bit of a I don't know, I don't know smoke and mirrors or whatever you want to call it, but I, I didn't think that was insignificant. I thought that that I, maybe it just says more about Will Rogers than KJ Costello. Um maybe they, they went they to Rod, maybe they went Rogers. to Costello and said, "Hey man, like Rogers had such an awesome job at camp and we want to reward him for this and like you're our starter, but we're just going to put an oar on the depth chart just to, you know, kind of throw him a bone here and you know, kind of recognize his awesome job that he had in camp. Um, yeah. Who knows? I, I yeah. It, it may be, it may be significant though. I, I guess we'll see. I, I think Mississippi State can put up some points in this game because Mike Leach has said it only takes me a couple of days to install this offense, but this is going to be quite the test to see if he's right about how many days it really takes him to install his offense. Cause they didn't get full spring and, and they, they certainly didn't get a normal summer uh, there in Starkville and LSU d- didn't have any kind of normal off season COVID or not, given the fact that they lost just so many dudes should note. Uh, maybe we talked about this last show, but Neil, uh, Neil Farrell is opting back in uh, for mm-hmm. them. So that, that's encouraging that on the LSU side. Where are we going now? Uh, Georgia, Arkansas, Sam Pittman, welcoming his old team to Fayetteville. Um, what you got here? Okay. First thing I want to figure out is tempo. You got a Kendall Bryles offensive coordinator. Typically his teams are a gold mine for betting overs because just, he's going to want to push the tempo nonstop, even if it's at the detriment of his own defense or of his own team. Uh, how how ready is this Arkansas team to play at, at an aggressive tempo? And is it actually smart for this Arkansas team to play at an up tempo? Because they're at a talent disadvantage, I think, in all of their games. And if they are, you know, you think about this. Like, if Arkansas is at a talent disadvantage in all their games, I don't know that it makes sense to maximize possession because eventually that, that talent advantage for the opponent is going to come through. So the main thing I want to see here is 
does Arkansas actually play at a typical Kendall Bryles tempo? And if so, how in the world does Arkansas's defense handle this? Because Georgia's offense, I'm not sure it's going to be good, but I'm pretty damn sure Arkansas's defense is not going to be good. And if you're putting them out there for a billion drives, this, this could get uh, could get pointsy for Georgia. Kendall Bryles is good at putting up yards. He's pretty good at putting up points. Um, I, I think it's the arc. The challenge of winning at Arkansas this year, in particular, isn't it, like it's going to be winning. Like it's going to be finding ways to allow your team to be successful. And so if Kendall Bryles can put up, you know, twenty points on Georgia. And he leaves and he can say, I put up 20 points on Georgia. Look at my offense. And Georgia put up 45 on Arkansas. Um, I'm not sure that you leave feeling any better about Arkansas. And so I think that that's like the big, like, I think offensive coordinators um, often get it wrong. Like that their job is just, just yards and points. Like their job is to help you win the game. And so I will be interested in seeing if that is in fact, Kendall Browse's mentality because it's a it's a whole different challenge Arkansas than just you know hey go do you we'll handle the defense. Um, now that said, at least they have an offensive guy as their head coach who will and an offensive line guy at that who will perhaps be kind of reeling a man at times. I'm uh, I'm extremely concerned about Arkansas's defensive line. Uh, here were their top defensive linemen last year: McTelvin Agim or Ajim, however the hell we end up saying that. Senior gone. Gabe Richardson, senior, gone. Uh, next on my list, uh, uh, Mateo Soli, actually a freshman. He'll be back. Next, Jamario Bell, senior, gone. Next, TJ Smith, senior, gone. If Kirby just wants to ease Georgia's new offense into this and, and, and get them running the ball and, and throw the ball off play action and, and, and stay ahead of the chains all day, Barton, I, I feel like he he's going to be able to do that. I, I want to, on the other side of the ball with Georgia, how much does Georgia just come out chucking it, right? Are, are they looking to actually come out and throw the ball and work on their passing offense, or are they just trying to get out of there with a win? Because I'm pretty sure Georgia can win, you know, 21 plus just by running the football here. But I don't. If they just come out and just run the ball a whole bunch, I don't know how much I'm actually learning about that because I don't think Arkansas's defense is any good. Well, so Dwan Mathis looks like he's going to be the starter. J.T. Daniels, the five-star transfer, is is not yet been cleared medically. Jamie Newman, the high-profile transfer from Wake, didn't opted out. So they, you know, you depending on who you talk to, Dwan Mathis was a, was playing like a baller, anyways. Um, so I think you know what does Dwan Mathis look like is going to be fascinating. Uh, not only just because, hey, what is, does Georgia have a quarterback or not, but also like think about the idea that, all right, Georgia just got done choosing uh, Jacob Eason to be a starting freshman quarterback. Then they go Jake Fromm over Jacob Eason. Then they go Jake Fromm over Justin Fields. Then they go Jamie Newman and JT Daniels quarterback battle. Then they go JT Daniels, Dwan Mathis quarterback battle. Now Dwan Mathis by necessity starts. What happens when JT Daniels gets healthy again? Does then JT Daniels transfer out again to somewhere else? If Dwan Mathis is good, like the, the, the spectrum of quarterback decisions that Kirby smart has had to make is enough for like a lifetime of coaching for most people. And, and it's, it seems like he's just getting started on these. Um, so I'm interested in that and and just like to refresh my memory of the Dwan Mathis uh, recruitment, like it's really interesting to think back about this. He was a uh, December 19th was when uh, the early signing period was back in 2018. And Dwan Mathis was committed to Ohio State. He flipped on signing day, signed with Georgia. And this was one day after Justin Fields transferred out so this is all like interconnected like Justin Fields transferred out December 18th because he couldn't beat out Jake Fromm uh he hadn't he didn't announce directly he goes to Ohio State but Dwan Mathis then you know he sees uh at, you know at Ohio State I guess Tate Martell was the class above them 
Um, they also recruited a guy named Matthew Baldwin that cycle who, who's never got it off ground because he was injured. But with the departure of Justin Fields at Georgia, Georgia was able to flip him. If they didn't, Stetson Bennett, I guess, would be their starting quarterback this week, um, you know, in, in retrospect. But just a really interesting sort of recruiting flip on signing day two years ago that is leading to what looks like potentially could be a really good quarterback based on his upside and 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 the buzz we're getting out of Athens. I'm really interested to see what what, what they're able to do with, with with Mathis. Clearly, he had some talent as, as a recruit. He's not a guy I got to see in person a whole lot. Um, there's also been reports that he's a lot bulkier now than he used to be because he was a super skinny kid the, the one time I did get to see him in person, almost like uh, shoot, like like James Blackman looking, you know, mm. as, as far as build and frame. But you know, if he's really bigger, I, clearly I'm interested to see him as a thrower. I am also interested to see how much they're able to run him, uh, and, and so that that'll be something I'm watching for in this one. Let's throw a G5 game into the mix here. Army at Cincinnati in the 3:30 window as well. We'll go quickly here. Army has looked pretty good for me so far. I want to know, can they run the football on, on a better defense that Cincinnati certainly has? My question on Cincinnati is, like, is the Cincinnati offense any better? I, I don't really trust Desmond Ritter to be a top-of-the-line quarterback. I know Cincinnati is a, a media darling, and we both like Cincinnati, but neither of us picked him to win the conference. And, and I think probably the hang-up for both of us, at least for me, was their offense. So for Cincinnati, look, Army's defense is not great. It's not maybe the worst defense they've ever had, but it's it's not an awesome defense. Can Cincinnati go up there and and, and put up points and, and put this thing away and be efficient with their offense and not rely so much on their excellent defense? You know, it's uh, the Army schedule is after Cincinnati. It's Abilene Christian, the Citadel, UTSA, Mercer, by Air Force, Tulane, Georgia Southern, and then Navy after a couple weeks off. This is if the if Army wants to indicate to anybody that they are like a legit top twenty five team. I mean, they're not going to make the playoffs. Like, they're not nothing like that's going to happen because they just don't have enough teams on their schedule. But they've they've totally steamrolled MTSU and Louisiana Monroe, neither of which are any good. This is basically the only good team on the schedule. Tulane and Navy, you know, you can make a case for Georgia Southern, we'll see. But this is the only decent game in the whole schedule for Army. So, like, well, let's see it. Like, here's your Super Bowl. Let's go. Uh, Tee it up. All right, to the night slate? Yeah. All right, let's go night slate here. Uh, ABC primetime, Florida State at Miami. Miami's third primetime game in a row. For Florida State, a game that, uh, if it goes like the Vegas experts think, uh, probably a game they wish would not be in primetime. Mike Norvell will not be coaching in this game because he caught COVID. Uh, as of now, it doesn't look like there's any other COVID holdouts at Florida State. So somehow contact tracing is not ensnared. Uh, other guys, despite the fact their head coach uh, got, got the virus. Um, we talked a little bit about Miami earlier in the show when discussing Louisville, and so I don't want to repeat those points. I do kind of want to know if Florida State can keep up with Miami's tempo defensively and not allow the, the big plays to just wide-open guys because they, they weren't guarding anybody and essentially make Miami earn it. I, I, I want to see if FSU's defense can have a bounce back. Uh, they, they were not very good on third and long at times against Georgia Tech. That's an area that Miami actually excelled in against Louisville. So, you know, can FSU, can they make Miami earn it? Can they make Miami drive and, and see how patient Miami's offense can be? On the flip side for me, I, look, I think I know the answer to this question, but the question is just can, can Florida State block Miami? For, for several years in a row now, the answer has been a, a resounding no. For a little while in 2018, they were able to kind of smoke and mirrors their way around it, but that's not sustainable. In 2019, they just got their ass kicked up front. For, for 60 minutes and really had no shot. I don't think they can block Miami, but if they can, Miami's secondary against Louisville did not look amazing. At times, they made some nice plays. Bubba Bolden made a really nice play on, on kind of a little slip screen deal. But there's plays to be had down the field if you can block it up. I'm just not sure if you can. Yeah, I mean, I, I think 
I'm a little like this. Surely Miami is going to be up for this game because it's Florida State. But I am. This is the first test of Miami. Okay, it's prime time. Everybody's watching. Kirk Herbstreit's on the call. They put up 47 on Louisville. Um, you know, not, what happens the next week? All right, congratulations, Miami. What happens the next week? We, we've they've fallen prey to getting losing focus uh, from time to time. Again, I don't expect that to happen because this is Florida State, but. I'd like to see if they can sort of maintain the focus. And I just, you know, Florida State's got to figure out a way to look competent. They've got to, like, so Mike Norvell's not calling the game, or he's not, Kenny Dillingham's calling the game, right? Yep. Yeah, so, Dillingham's on the call. So Dillingham's got got the call in the plays on offense. Uh, Norvell will be uh, zooming in somewhere, maybe. I don't know how that, that all is going to work. But uh, I just, you know, what does game two in this system look like because game one looked like look like look bad so that, bad that's actually team. an interesting point though barton is we've seen a lot of these these teams that have new head coaches and, and new systems on both sides of the ball look really bad in, in their opening games and even boston college early on did not look early oh they got the win over duke primarily because i think duke screwed around enough with five turnovers and some crazy I don't know if we just if we discuss this. Duke had like back to back personal fouls that that set him up with a fourth and forty one after being in the red zone and they had to punt. Um, yeah, you know, eventually Duke found found themselves or excuse me, BC found themselves in that game and were able to put up you know points largely because Duke I think kind of kept him in the game for for a long time with some you know kind of turnover luck there. It, Florida State's had a bye week and they clearly are able to identify some of the issues they have to work on personnel wise. Some of those issues may not be fixable this year. Some of them might be. I know some of their coaches have said, hey, th- there's some things w- w- that we now that we've seen in live game action that, that we know we can fix, blah, blah, blah. We'll see if they can. Um, I do think there's an argument to be made that a bye week early in the year is normally not a good thing. But if you're a new head coach with new schemes, you might want your bye week early in the year so you can continue your install and re- and it allows you to realize and maybe correct some of the things that you thought your team could already do based on their couple weeks of practice that a game week showed you that they actually cannot do. No doubt. Yeah. I, I, I think um, there's enough good players. And I think the, you know, the offensive line did look, in, in, you know, better. Is that fair to say? Did they look improved? Kind of, but, but well, yes and no. So I, I, David Hale of ESPN, who's a really good follow. If you guys like, like ACC stuff, I think he does a tremendous job. He put out a, a a tweet showing what they looked like when they had their five starters in, and what they looked like when they you know when they didn't. And it, it's it's a good tweet uh, because like they had four offensive line injuries in the game at various times. But the, the only real issue I have with it is that team looked really good on their opening script. But if you if you filter out the script and just compare starting offensive line once the script was over versus you know all the other offensive line combos it really wasn't any good. They were still, I think, under 3.3 yards of play. So, like, one, the, the bigger issue was this team looked fairly decent when they were on a script because they had repped those those plays a lot. Once they got off script, they, they couldn't do a damn thing to get short to tech. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, so, last game on the docket is Tennessee at South Carolina – uh, an SEC East prove it game for a couple couple of teams that uh, want to be in the mix but haven't been yet. What do you think? Anxiety bowl here, maybe. <laughs> the, the, the loser of this is not ha- not not happy. Can you imagine if Tennessee loses this? Like they've been like every, like they're the darling of everybody. Everyone's picking them as the dark horse. Everyone's you know that they're they're sort of the the sweethearts, you know, revival type of team. And, and yet this is not a gimme. I mean, the line demonstrates that it's what, three points, two and a half or something uh, like three and a half now, th- three and a half. So, yep. you know, it, it's the, South Carolina's their quality team. You know, they've got, they, they, they've had more time to recruit to their system than, than uh, Jeremy Pruitt has. They've, They've got very similar philosophies in terms of how they recruit the type of players they want. Uh, this is this is not a layup, and if if Tennessee loses, that that would be a gut punch 
to I think that that fan base because I think they consider themselves ha- having passed up South Carolina. Man, Tennessee's got to win this ball game. Otherwise, I I, I do think that the narrative is going to be. And some of this improvement they had last year came against second or even third string quarterbacks down the stretch, and, and maybe it was a little bit of fool's gold. The over-under on this contest is 42 and a half points. That is like a, a boring NFL game over-under. Not quite like, you know, Bears-Bills. But, I mean, dude, this is pretty freaking bad as far as an over-under goes. If you're looking to fall asleep, maybe if the FSU-Miami game is over at halftime, if you want to flip a game on that will, will not wake you from your slumber, if, if you happen to doze off, this is probably the one, dude. I, I don't think we're going to have a whole lot of a uh, whole lot of explosive plays in, in this game. Um, I, I need to see if Tennessee can run the football efficiently. Last year they ran it often, but they didn't actually run it very well. And for that offense to improve, they have got to be able to to actually gain yards on the ground and be efficient with the run game. With South Carolina, one of their transfers who they thought was going to start is still is still uh, held up in. Uh, in review process and looks like it's not going to happen. I don't know who the hell South Carolina is throwing the ball to. I mean, their, their depth chart, especially because we saw that announcement yesterday. It's just, just flat scary bad. Like they might have the second worst receivers in the league behind Vanderbilt. And I think Brad Crawford might argue that they're worse than Bandy. The receiver situation is interesting. They, they've, they've not, done a good job of finding um, explosive players on the outside to this point. They've got a, they got their true freshman quarterback who has moved to their backup wide receiver, which gives you a little idea of where they're at there. Um, the, they're, they're young at receiver. Uh, Xavier Leggett, Jakari uh, Caldwell, uh, carry on Joyner, you know, all those guys are freshmen, sophomores, Rico powers at a good camp. He's a big, big, strong outside guy. Um, and then they got the Mike Bobo system coming in and Mike Bobo's like, he, he's probably, I think Georgia fans were a little bored with Mike Bobo from when he was their offensive coordinator, but he's, he's sort of, um, I don't know. He found a little bit of more of a wide open vibe out of Colorado state. He, you know, the, the, the mountain West air kind of got under his wings a little bit. And, and, uh, you know, I would expect he's going to come with a little more pace, a little more, um, pass happy I think you know they don't quite have the run game to commit to it in the same way that they maybe used to uh, or, or they used to want to anyways so I, I wouldn't be surprised if they try to throw the ball around a good bit more even if they don't quite have the personnel at wide receiver uh, and Colin Hill the Colorado State transfer is their quarterback so it's going to be fun to see what he can do uh, but I, I think clearly to me Tennessee has done a better job of elevating their roster to the point where I think they have a better roster at this point, um, which is a little bit of an indictment on Muschamp because he had plenty of time to have his, you know, his roster healthy. But I, I kind of like the players on Tennessee's depth chart a little bit better than what I see in South Carolina's. So that, that should be, we'll see if I'm right. At most positions, I agree with you. I, I do think South Carolina has one of the better secondaries in the SEC and, and with what they lost up front, I know they have some talent coming back, not not quite as high on the experience for South Carolina's defensive front. They should be able to play a lot of solo coverage on, on the back end and, and devote a lot, a lot of bodies to stopping the run. So you know, maybe Tennessee will have to be able to beat them over the top and exploit some of that solo coverage. Barton, there's this narrative out there that, like, uh, not McElwain, gosh, uh, Muschamp finally has an offensive coordinator that he can trust, right, that, that he really, truly believes in. And I just think this is such BS because he had like he rehired the same guy at South Carolina who he had as an offensive coordinator at Florida. What's his name? Um, Kurt Roper. Yeah. Like, if, is that not evidence that you finally have a guy you believe in that you had him at a previous stop and, and you went out of your way to go go get him and bring him back with you to South Carolina? I, I'm just 100% prove it. With, with a Will Muschamp offense, man. He has never had a good offense. He reminds me of one of these defensive head coaches who just is incapable of allowing his offense to thrive. And I'll be happy to be wrong, but man, I just, some guys are just made to be defensive coordinators and he has his, his foot on the throat of his own offense every single year of his coaching career, period. They always suck. Sometimes they suck a lot. Sometimes they just suck a little bit, but must champ offenses are routinely bad. And I don't hey, think it's his coordinators. I mean, 
Yes. I, like, you're, I mean, what it, it was your be, favorite Will Muschamp offense? It might, it might be his court. I think you're right about the idea that like, uh, you, you can't say he hadn't trusted any of these guys before he's hired them all. It's not, like he's like an right. inheriting coordinator. Like he's, he is just a really poor coordinator assessor, either that or, or yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, there's probably a little bit of that as well, where he just like, it's hard for an offense to be, to thrive with Will Muschamp you know, at the helm. So maybe that's part of it too, but this is, I think there's no excuses here. Like if, if Mike Bobo is not successful, then, you know, you look around the the table and if you don't spot the, the mark, then you're the mark or whatever, like whatever the phrase is, like if, you know, Will Muschamp's the problem. If everyone else, you know, has, has, has gone through the, the revolving door and, and you keep on having the same failures offensively, well, the common denominator is you. Uh, so yeah, like this, but because I think, I think that Mike Bobo's reputation is that which, you know, there's reason to believe that Mike Bobo is, is a good offensive coordinator. I'm not saying he's like Cliff Kingsbury and, and things, but there's reason to believe he's a good offensive coordinator. So if they still can't find consistency there, then it's not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking to Mike Bobo as the primary culprit. We're in agreement there. So uh, you may know Patrick Peterson for striking the Heisman pose while LSU or making eight Pro Bowls with the Arizona Cardinals. Well, now he's expanding his resume to podcasting. Yep. And we got competition. He'll go from the football field on Sundays to the studio on Mondays for all things all things covered with his co-host, cousin, and two-time Super Bowl champ, Brian McFadden. The name of the pod says it all. Pat and BMAC will break down the Cardinals and the NFL on a weekly basis, but we'll also discuss much, much more. You can also expect them to chop it up with a prominent guest on each episode. I think Mike Tomlin might be coming up. That's not in the ad read here. I I heard that on on the podcast meeting this week. Download and subscribe to All Things Covered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found. So I'll be sure to bookmark and five-star review for those guys, part of the CBS family. Let's get out of here with a listener question. And it's about a, a team and a player who are not playing this weekend and are not playing for a couple weeks. but. We always appreciate those five-star reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. We're trying to make sure that we incorporate at least one listener question per episode. Hit us with those five stars. Drop your question. This one comes from RX Man CrossFitness. You ever done any CrossFit? No, my back can't handle that. Done a couple classes. It's it's a serious workout. So he asks, uh, love the analysis. Great insight into the role that the talent plays on successful football teams. My question is this. What do you think about Joe Milton? Is he a Buckeye killer? So I'm kind of wondering, is this guy, a, is he a Michigan fan? Is he an Ohio State fan? Good question regardless, because w- w- with the transfer out of McCaffrey, pretty clear that Joe Milton has won the job. Uh, you want to lead off here or you, you want to go second? Well, I, I, you've, you've probably seen Joe Milton more than I have because he's, you know, he's back down from your neck of the woods. Um, so you would have, I'll let you dig into sort of what he is specifically. Um, from my perspective though, like the, the simple answer is no, he's not Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence or some quarterback that you just roll the ball out there. And the, the you know, everyone in the country is, is, is trying to figure out ways to stop you. I, I think he's talented. Uh, I think to beat Ohio state, there, it's not a one man deal. Uh, that maybe that's obvious, but I just think like there's a lot, there's a lot that has to happen for uh, for Michigan to, to get over that hump. Um, and I'm I'm kind of more. I think he's. I think he can facilitate some of the talents in ways that Dylan McCaffrey probably couldn't. Um, and and so in that sense, you know, I, I think this is probably the best case scenario for Ohio State or for for Michigan in terms of who won out in that quarterback competition. So I I got to see Milton a pretty good bit in high school. And in seven on, he, he's from here in Orlando, originally from Pahokee, but, but he played his, his high school ball here in Orlando. Um, I'll start physically. He is probably the closest thing physically as far as build that I've seen to Cam Newton. And I make that comparison not in terms of ability, but just of, of in terms of, of physical stature and, and build. Um, I saw Cam Newton standing next to him on a seven on seven field. And I was like, oh, wow. Like Joe Milton, we knew he's big, but he's like, Big, big, tough to bring down. He is a good athlete in, in in the open field. The arm is freaky strong. I mean, he can throw it 
long distances and, and with, with all the good and bad that might come with that. I think there's an obvious flaw in the game that could be improved, or if it doesn't, we'll hold him back. And that is consistent accuracy, right? He was not a very accurate passer in high school relative to a lot of these other guys coming out. We know as evaluators that high school stats matter more or a little bit more than we actually probably wish they, they did because otherwise you, you would just look at the arm, you know, but he, he sometimes his guys struggle with drops. I'll, I'll give him credit for that. But the accuracy numbers in high school were really not there. I also, the other real thing I would ding him on, because like I've said, the build is great. The athleticism is awesome. He can do a standing backflip. A lot of quarterback prospects probably can't, and he can throw it really hard. I, sometimes I thought that the amount of touch and arc that he put on throws, even in seven on, was like inappropriately calculated. And one example I have in my mind that I was standing behind him filming was he, he, had, he had a crosser coming wide open in the end zone, and it should just be a, like a pretty easy flip, right? There's nobody, there's nobody in front of this guy. If he leads him at all, it, it's, it's great. If he puts it on him, it's great. Uh, but he took and he threw an absolute rocket wrong shoulder to the kid kid had to like stop try to turn around it doesn't have any time to react ball shoots straight up in the air picked off touchback and i was like wait what like why why is the full wind up byron leftwich you know 100 mile an hour laser here on on this throw like why why was that the choice so that's sort of seared into my brain if joe milton could be more accurate then michigan might really have something if he can't then I don't know that he's the, the, the Buckeye killer. If they get this guy to become a pinpoint passer, though, then I think he could be a Buckeye killer. It's just that's a, a really huge if. It's kind of crazy how quickly Jim Harbaugh went from quarterback whisperer to just how when is this guy ever going to get a quarterback again? Is this the first um, guy he's recruited that uh, at Michigan that actually signed at a high school that, that he's going to have play for him? They, they had a transfer from Iowa, right? Well, I mean, um, he, what Wilton Spate was Wilton Spate not a, a Harbaugh signee? I think he was probably already on the roster. Yeah, maybe. Was he? He might have been. It's been a mess. It really has. Oh, um, I mean, and and, and his – I think we've talked about it on this pod, but his his uh, his quarterback lineage before this cold streak was was unimpeachable. It was awesome. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't argue with it. Um, but he's at a dry spell. Uh, so I, that, that's a weird deal. So we'll see if Joe Milton breaks the streak here, Blake breaks the slump. He certainly, he's got the ability, he's got the size, the stature, all that sort of stuff. But like you said, that, that's always been his knock. Even back in high school, that was his knock accuracy. I don't even think his pre- completion percentage was that great. No, uh, it wasn't. So it's, uh, it's something to watch for sure. All right, guys, five stars on iTunes. If you're liking the show, we will see you again uh, bright and early Monday morning. Really appreciate all the new subscribers we have. And if you're listening to this on the website, guys, hit subscribe. Choose your favorite app. Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever you like. We're on there. We'll see you all again soon.